Please join me in a word of prayer. And gracious Heavenly Father, as it is our custom, we, have, we pray that you would open our hearts to your presence as we gather together in worship on this day. And that as you open our eyes to your, uh, to your grace and, and that you do your work by your Spirit, that we might be granted a fresh discovery of, of who you are and how wonderful you are. But I suppose it's also right that you would also then grant us an awareness of ourselves, not only your presence, but, Lord, who we are as well. For we readily confess that we, we spend our lives stumbling and tumbling and bumbling our way through, often unaware of the truth that we are, in fact, as the saying goes, our own worst enemies. So, Lord, we need the revelation of your Spirit to see ourselves and, and this morning to reveal to us how our habits those have, have created those things that prevent us from, from following you, that have created hurdles, Lord, that, uh, that, that are unnecessary as we respond to you. And so that we could, Lord, in fact, in simplicity and in faith, follow you with an open heart, And that, Lord, in obedience to your claim in our lives, we might come to you, Lord, with thanksgiving and also, Lord, with that heart of service to be the man or the woman you've meant us to be from the beginning of time. So, Lord, I open our hearts, Lord, to the speaking of your word so that we can hear now, Lord, with clarity the voice of your spirit. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Might as well say it. Happy Father's Day to you all, who are fathers. Okay. I'm going to begin this morning with a a little story. Some time ago, my wife and I had a chance to go through a ropes course with our son and one of his friends. And one of the activities along the different obstacles of the ropes course was a a square that had been set out in the ground, a a square of, of rope in which inside there was a litter of obstacles, cones and rocks, all sorts of things. And, and so the instructor actually split us into teams and had us stand on opposite sides of the square from each other. And one member of, of each of the teams was then blindfolded. And then we were told that the other member would have to call it instructions that would get that person through the square to the other side without, and that is the key, without touching any of the obstacles. Touch an obstacle and you would have to go back and start all over again from the beginning. And the goal was to get uh, the, the person with the blindfold to the other side of the box. And so the game began. You, you can imagine how it went. You know, the person's blindfolded and you're calling out, lift your leg up, step one foot forward, now step to the right one, now step left, bring your feet together. Oh, you touched one. Go back, start over again. Okay, step forward, over the rock. Okay, oh, oh. And it, and it was a rather frustrating experience. You can imagine how hard it was, especially when there were so many other voices that were calling out with conflicting instructions. And when it was over and everyone had their turn, the instructor asked us then to reflect a little bit on the experience. And after we had all kind of expressed our frustrations on on, on getting through the obstacles, he asked a question that that left me speechless. He said, why didn't you just ask your teammate to step sideways far enough until they were past the corner of the box and then have them just walk straight forward to the sound of your voice? Excuse me! You said we were supposed to give instructions that would get us through the obstacles. 
No, he said. I just said that the goal was to get to the person to the other side of the box without touching the obstacles. But, 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 but you didn't say anything about going outside of the box. Yes, and I didn't say anything about staying inside of the box either. What a concept. <laughs> Thinking outside of the box. We use that phrase. But it's amazing the utter simplicity that comes with accomplishing a very direct goal. Now, as I was studying this passage that we have before us this morning, that, that little episode that we experienced jumped to my mind as a perfect illustration of what Jesus is doing in Luke chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles, turn there to Luke 14 as we start at the first verse. There we read that one Sabbath, Jesus was invited to eat in the home of a prominent Pharisee. Now, in some translations, it reads, the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees. And the word leader there indicates there's something special, even more so, about this, that this was a member of the Sanhedrin, a a, a body of religious officials who were the caretakers of the rules of faith. And this Pharisee at large, uh, the Pharisees at large, I'm sorry, were uh, an extremely religious group. They were not necessarily evil. They were, in fact, very religious. And there were people who took seriously not only the laws of God, but then ended up adding all sorts of interpretations, layer upon layer of policies and procedures that had built up around a simple faith that was required to become a child of God. You might have considered them to be the umpires, the referees of religion, the ones who knew the rules backwards and forwards and insisted that they be observed down to the tiniest detail. They were the ones who had actually built the box. And it says here in verse 1 that as the table was set, they were watching Jesus closely. As the NIV has it, he, Jesus, was being carefully watched. Literally, the Greek word means he was being watched from an angle. That's how the Greek says it. Watched from an angle, on the sly. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize that something is up. These referees in their striped robes had, had set up a trap. Encircling Jesus there, were just waiting to blow the whistle and pounce on him. And so in verse 2, there's the trap. There in front of Jesus was a man suffering from dropsy. Now today, dropsy has a whole other name. We call it edema. It's an unusual swelling of the body where for some reason the organs in the body that filter the essential fluids within us, the liver or the kidneys have broken down and then the skin begins to swell with this buildup of of fluids to the point where you can't hide the fact that this guy is sick. He's bloated. He's inflated. And as they set him front and center in front of Jesus, it is a setup. And to understand the nature of this trap, you've got to go back to chapter 13, where on another Sabbath, Jesus had taken the initiative to heal a crippled woman in a synagogue. And the response of the local elders in that chapter 13 was of, of indignation. Well, that's against the rules. Look at verse, chapter 13, verse 15. Oh, there are six other days of the week for work, so come and be healed on those days, but don't dare do it or try it on the Sabbath. So here in chapter 14, that message had reached the Sanhedrin, and so they responded by setting up a trap, a test, to see for themselves what Jesus is all about. And as the stage is set, (laughs) 
It is there, very similar, but only this time, the plan backfires in their face as Jesus then springs the trap upon them. Look at verse 3. Jesus asked the Pharisees, the experts of the law, you tell me, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, I want you to follow the logic here. If we can all agree, Jesus is saying, if we can all agree that God is the Lord of the Sabbath, tell me what is on his Sabbath heart this morning, the Sabbath. What sort of Sabbath intentions does God have, not just for this poor man before us, but for all of humanity? It's a great question, really. What say you, Sanhedrin? What is on the God of the Sabbath's heart in this very moment? Well, we read that they were speechless. They, they remained silent. God's intentions, God's heart, well, we, we don't know. We can't say. All we really have are a bunch of rules. I, I, I don't have anything in my rule book that explains it. And what started out as a trap became, in fact, a very teachable moment where Jesus then reveals the heart of God, which creates a context to rewrite that rule book of life. And in verse 4, Jesus then simply goes outside of the box, reaches out, touches the man, takes a hold of him, healed him, and sent him on his way, pure and simple. The man is made whole. No policies, no procedures, no clutter, no fuss, no muss. Just a clear, simple, and direct line drawn from one point to another, from the heart of God to the need of man. What are God's intentions? To make us whole, to make you whole, to restore you, to heal you, to take the damaged and make it new, to seek and save the lost. That's God's intentions. To get us from one side of the box to the other in the most simple and direct way. And if that demonstration wasn't enough, Jesus then goes further to ask a rhetorical question. In verse 5, he says, If one of you has a son or an ox and, and, and that falls into a well on a Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? That's a rhetorical question. Of course so. Come on, you know the heart of the matter. What is foremost on the heart of a heavenly father? That you spend your life tiptoeing through a minefield of obstacles just because they are there? Just because you put them there? Or that you follow his simple instructions in order to receive the gift of grace? What are God's intentions? Now you can almost, as you're looking at that in chapter 14, hear the shuffling of feet and <clears throat> a few of the nervous coughs in verse 16, because, in verse 6, because it says they had nothing to say. The fact is, they knew that the law never specifically forbade acts of compassion on the Sabbath, but they had forgotten what was at the heart of God in terms of compassion. And in one motion, Jesus swept away whatever barriers there are that are designed to prevent God from reaching man, you, me, all of us. And having broken the barrier of God reaching humans, Jesus then turns his attention to humans and the barriers that they have in responding to him. 
From God's side, nothing stands in the way. But from our side, in verse 7, it becomes evident that we have to think and respond in order to step outside of the box as well, shuffle our way beyond the corner to get to him. Uh, If you catch that picture, then the rest of this passage then will make sense. I'll confess, as I studied verses 7 through 14, you have two parables separated by a lesson. It appeared to me at first almost like a collection of random thoughts, but given the context, how we respond to the heart of God, what we have here is a powerful invitation to step aside from whatever obstacles there are that stand between us and God. So in verses 7 through 11, we find that for those who are eager to pick out places for honor themselves, the proud, he has a parable intended to sweep away the obstacle of pride. And in verses 13 and 14, for those who rely upon an exercise of power to exert themselves, they measure checks and balances, they expect payments in return. He recalculates the measurement of blessing. And in verse 15 through 24, for those who are preoccupied with, who get fixated on the distractions of life, Jesus gives a parable that covers any other excuse, obstacle, or agenda in order to focus upon what really matters most. And what matters most? That we take up God as his invitation to sit at his table and enjoy being with him forever. What is the chief end of man but to enjoy God forever? Boy, I've got the makings of a sermon outline here because I have three Ps. I have the proud, the powerful, and the preoccupied. In fact, I didn't come up with this until just a couple days ago, so you might want to change your sermon outlines that you have written down there and, and disregard my PowerPoints. Um, uh, but, but the proud, the powerful, and the preoccupied, every single one of them find themselves in, in need of correction. So I love the way we find it in verse 7, as it, as it is put this way. It says, He noticed how people were picking out their seats at the banquet table. <laughs> Jesus knows what's going on. Uh, people entered the room, they start jockeying to find the best seat. It's almost like a grown-up game of musical chairs where everybody is kind of revealing their own strategy. He knows what's going on as, as they're coming in to be with him. And whatever strategy is at play at the human banquet has got to change if you're going to find your seat at the heavenly banquet of heaven. So the question is, what sort of strategy is getting in your way? Is it that you are so focused on your own pathway to success, uh, to power, power driven by your own ego, desperately attempting to earn recognition so that even an invitation to a banquet becomes all about you? Is that the obstacle? Aha, I've arrived. My seat must be in the front row. That is, of course, unless you're a Baptist and you take the pew in the back. But, um, ah, ooh, now smile at me. You know I love you. Okay, okay, okay. And if that is the problem of pride, Jesus says, for every, I mean, for, of, 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 yeah, uh, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Face it, you won't find many assertive training seminars giving that sort of advice today. 
Today's conventional wisdom says that getting ahead depends upon how well you are able to sell yourself. But, But Christ's teaching here turns that all on its head. And his advice is God's grace is all about him, God, not you. It's all about him, not you. So be content with the honor of just being invited to be in his presence, even if it seems to you, in your perspective, that you're sitting in the back row. We sing a chorus from time to time. Let's see if we can remember it. Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your house. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. According to Jesus, that's the truth that you take to heart. And if my understanding of chapter 13, verse 30 is correct, where when the first are last and the last are first before God means that we are all, in fact, equal in his sight, then being seated at his table means that we are equal as well because it is not about us, it is not about you, it is all about God and his desire to, to bring you back to himself. And the honor is simply this. He knows you, he loves you, and he has called you into his presence. Is pride getting in the way? Is that a problem for you? In his own gentle way, Jesus is saying, get over yourself. Or maybe pride might not be the problem. It might be power that's the problem where you've learned to live with calculations in life that go outside of yourself and you begin to scan others with a competitive eye and where you begin to adopt that that principle of quid pro quo that goes to work with you and your relationships with others and turns it into a matter of leverage and power. What I do for you will match what you will eventually do for me. And you see that that, that, that principle at work in verses 12 through 14. Just the terms that are used in those two verses are, are of return and repayment. We often give our, our hand in kindness to certain people because we're hoping that, that, that they'll be in our debt, thinking to ourselves, now mm, that person's going to owe me and help me in my career or boost me to a higher social level. They owe me. But I love the response to Jesus' teaching that we find in verse 15 where a single voice calls out, Blessed is everyone who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Whoever it was, (laughs) humble and unnamed, anonymous, he got it right. That the blessing of God is showered upon those whom God blesses. And that includes the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, as much as it does include you and me. It is in his power to bless. That blessing comes. Not in our power to negotiate a deal with him. You see, the chances are, and I am convinced of this from personal and pastoral experience, when someone has learned to relate to others based upon quid pro quo, they will, no doubt about it, seek to relate to God in that same manner. God, do this for me, and I will do that for you. Let's make a deal. But it is simply not in our power 
to pry from God blessing. It is his to give. So the proud and the powerful, they have a lesson to learn. What it means to to come running to Jesus. But so too do the preoccupied. Do you like the peas? The preoccupied. From verses 16 through 24, Jesus tells a story, and it's a familiar parable to many, where God is the master who throws a feast, and Jesus is the servant who is delivering the invitations. That's the personalities in the parable. And when the time comes for people to respond, there are a few who find themselves preoccupied with other things. One is absorbed in his personal business, and one is fixated on his personal possessions. And a third is riveted upon a personal relationship. But all of them are so distracted by personal issues that they are unable to sort out the priorities in life. And thus, they miss the greatest and the best because they are fixated upon the current and the urgent. (laughs) One of the best books that I have in my library on time management carries a simple little title, The Tyranny of the Urgent. And and that title seems to say it all. Our greatest danger, I read in there, is, is letting the urgent things crowd out the important, even the most important of all. We live in constant tension between the urgent and the important and end up becoming captives of the urgent because it demands instant action and applies constant pressure every hour and every day. But against that pressure, the master sends his servant with a message that, 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 that reverberates with urgency. The urgency of a ringing bell. He says, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them. Compel them to come in that my house may be made full. And in that act, Jesus then is sent outside of the box. Go, the master says. And that servant, Jesus Christ, is still crying out to the world with an invitation to receive an offer of salvation and follow him then to the kingdom banquet because the table has been set. And his voice is calling out to you right now as well. He has stepped outside the box, so must we, so must you to get past those hurdles that have been set before you. When I was in seminary, I learned a lesson from my roommate on what that takes. Tony DiOrio, tough kid from the streets of Cleveland, Ohio. I just called him T. He invited me to join with him in an evangelistic ministry with students at Harvard University. And there we had a very delightful and intense conversation with a brilliant young man who, who asked us very hard theological questions about the gospel. But he accepted, this is a remarkable thing, he accepted our answers with respect and understanding. He got the point about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, and that anyone who believed in him would be saved. He got the point. But if he got the point, he simply could not make the move in his own soul. He found it impossible to accept the invitation that was laid out so clearly before him. And in a moment of complete and utter clarity, Tony, or T, looked him in the eye and said in the way that only T could, he said, you know what your problem is? you got to learn to set yourself aside. I just love that phrase. 
you got to learn to set yourself aside. Because it's our choice to live in the box. To set up the obstacles of our own making. Obstacles that are built upon pride and upon power. Obstacles of preoccupation and distraction. you got to learn to set yourself aside in order to be able to hear a very clear voice of a Savior calling you by name saying, come to me, come to me. The banquet is set. Just come to me. Let nothing get in the way. Set yourself aside. Blessed is everyone who hears and who comes and who shall eat the bread of the kingdom of God. As I come to the end of this sermon, I realize that there are, in fact, a few here who have have been toying with the decision. Wondering, do do I wait to decide until I'm perfect in my life? That's an obstacle of pride. Or, that may change my lifestyle. That's an obstacle of power. Or, I've got other things I want to do with my life before I consider my spirit. That's preoccupation, folks. Now is the time. Today is the day. The voice of the Lord is calling, and he knows you by name. Would you just set yourself aside? And in obedience, follow him. There's a party waiting for you. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father. In obedience to your claim in our lives, we give ourselves to you this day. All that we are, all that we have, and all that we are to be. To you and to your using. And we do so confessing, Lord, that we have become captives of our own making. And that, Lord, we have lived with a sinful preoccupation with ourselves. So that it is all that we see. I pray that you would grasp the focus of our heart so that we might see you and the wonder of your love. That you might cleanse the the fixation of our lives so that we might be able to hear your voice with such clarity saying, come unto me, come unto me, come unto me. And Lord, in obedience to that call, we give ourselves to you now knowing that as we give ourselves to you now, it is forevermore, it is the kingdom of heaven that awaits. This we pray with thanksgiving, all in the wonderful name of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.